Good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to say welcome again in this week now for a next edition of our Ask Bonnie podcast. It's my pleasure to introduce Emily Johnson to you. Hi, Emily. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Good to have you with us. Emily is working as a research assistant and project staff at our Department of Innovation and Digitalization in law. She started there in September 2018, and since then, she has been quite intensely involved in many of the key projects uh, that we are dealing with in particular in the field of data protection, but also in intellectual property law, in quite some different aspects, not only uh, police and security related, but also when it comes to social platforms uh, or when it comes to medical issues of information security. Emily is one of the, of the key people to ask because of her most distinguished background. Um, Emily is British um, and she was also educated um, in the UK. Uh, she holds an LLM from the University of Edinburgh in technolo technology and innovation and the law. Uh, that um, she finished this uh, in late 2018, and before that she was at the University of Southampton, uh, qualifying with an LLB uh, from 2014 and 2017. And as I said, since uh, September 2018, she is with us in Vienna. Uh, really, really pleased to have you there. At the moment, actually, you are not in Vienna, but you are in, um, in, in your home country. Um, Emily, how are you and where are you exactly at the moment? Uh, well, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, so I'm in the UK in the family home at the moment in a little village, just probably about 60 kilometers west of London. Mm -hmm. um, it's very quiet here compared to what's going on, um, but we're all isolating, following all of the rules in the UK. Yeah. And how is daily life there at the moment? Um, for now, it's just staying at home, going out for our once a day exercise, which is permitted under the law at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. Occasionally going to the shops. We're not required to wear the masks like you are in Austria at the moment, although some people are. Um, and it's all about going out only when it's absolutely necessary. Yes. Okay. So no masks. This is this is part of the official policy at the moment because masks wouldn't be available, or because uh, the government thinks that they are not useful. Or I think it's a combination of the two, actually. So we've mm -hmm. had a big issue with getting hold of medical equipment in general in the UK, um, particularly for NHS staff and care staff. That's a mm -hmm. huge issue. Um, and I don't think that there's been an overarching policy from the government that it's entirely useful and necessary at the moment. Mm -hmm. Actually, the, govern, uh, the government policy in the UK was, at least from an Austrian perspective, rather different uh, from the very beginning uh, and not really consistent uh, because the, the at the beginning, at least from our point of view, as I say, uh, from, at the beginning, the UK was not really very, uh, very quick and not really very harsh in, in, in starting with uh, measures of social distancing. And then suddenly uh, the policy changed quite quickly. Uh, and now it's some kind of mixture in between in a way, isn't it? Um, I, I wouldn't say it's a mixture, but I would absolutely agree with what you said about the kind of indecisiveness at the beginning. Yeah. So, um, I mean, laws were brought in already in February that mm -hmm. um, the whole lockdown could happen and could be permitted under law, but nothing really happened until the end of March or the second half of March. Um, where basically we were told we should social distance and then um, no one really followed the rules, particularly in the big cities. And I'm sure you and many of our viewers saw the images on the London Underground where they were just packed as usual and people were out in parks as usual. 
and then when the lockdown came into force on the 23rd of March, I think it was, um, then I think in general people have been sticking to the rules and that comes with the just general necessity for going out. Um, and I mean, where I am, it's very quiet and you only see people going out to the shops and that's about it. But um, I would say in the major cities, particularly as we've had really excellent, uncharacteristically British weather at the moment, um, people have been going out and trying to enjoy themselves a little bit. So I would say in general, people are following the rules and the rules are there and they're not overly strict, but they're strict enough that I would say people are abiding by them and police are enforcing them. Mm -hmm. Not too strictly at the moment, um, or at least not too harshly. So what exactly are the rules? Are you allowed to leave the house for leisure purposes, for example? Um, so not strictly leisure purposes. So we have, there's basically four rules. So you can go out for um, shopping for necessities. So that's food and medicine. Mm -hmm. um, you can go out for one, one amount of exercise a day and there's no time restriction on that. It just says once a day. Um, then you can travel for work, but only if you can't work from home and then for medical purposes. And so that could be a doctor's appointment and that also extends, um, for example, to caring for a vulnerable person or donating blood. Okay, and that means, for example, that the underground in London is still running on a, on, on a normal level. And well, interestingly, um, the decision was made to have less trains on the London underground, which okay. has meant, which in my opinion is a funny decision because you think that maybe more trains or the same amount of trains would be better so then so people can social distance effectively um, but we have less trains the idea that would is that there would be less people mm. um, and people are still using it I suppose to get to work perhaps to get to parks it's not clear but mm. um, social distancing I think is difficult still on the underground yeah in particular in London I think I mean everyone who ever was in London knows that that the situation in the underground is quite uh intense or stock I would call Absolutely. it right? so, yeah yeah and 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 is there any any political debate on whether this is sufficient at the moment or do you think that the uh the, the population in particular in London supports uh the intensity of the measures I would say in general I, the public in general think that this is sufficient and I think most people are sticking to it across mm. the country um, and I think that the government would be reluctant to put in any stricter rules mm -hmm. um, given the amount given the situation as it is I think yeah yeah and I mean when it comes to the to the to the numbers simply to the figures mm. how is the UK doing at the moment is um, it, so is this yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so when I, when I checked this morning, um, we had 16,000, around 16,000 deaths, um, which is quite significant. Um, confirmed cases were about 120,000. Mm. Um, but the biggest problem that we've had, as you may have heard, is the testing. So in total, we've tested about 370,000 people. Um, and we're averaging about 20,000 tests a day, mm -hmm. um, which it's kind of problematic when you compare to countries like Germany, who were obviously really big on the testing or South Korea, um, we're really not doing great. Um, so the aim was from the government by mid April to be at 25,000 tests a day. And on Saturday, that was only at 21,000. Mm -hmm. So the and, plan was to yeah. get this up to 100,000 and 250,000, but we're simply not on track for the amount of tests. 
And why is this? Because there is simply a lack of uh, material available on the market or, or is it because yeah, organizational I say, issues? I would say it's a combination of things. It's mm -hmm. part of that lack of decisiveness at the beginning mm -hmm. um, meant that we were not able to get hold of it or there wasn't a decision made to get hold of enough tests. Um, mm -hmm. There's also an issue of the fact that while we have really excellent research facilities in the UK, we simply don't have the scale to produce the tests or perform the tests. Um, and from what I understand also, there's real big issues with getting hold of just simply the swabs or the reagents needed to um, examine the virus. Mm -hmm. And I think one, one article I was looking at said that the cost of the swabs have now gone up 100% since before mm -hmm. the virus. So there's competition all throughout Europe mm -hmm. and the UK were particularly late to the game. So mm -hmm. we simply don't have the resources. Although we have set up now, um, so tests have been done at hospitals and there are now I think 29 drive-through test centers in the UK. So you can just literally turn up at the, um, in your car, open your mouth, someone swabs you and then you receive the test back, but it's still not sufficient at this stage. Yeah, I, I mean, from, from a continental perspective, a strategy which is not doing a lot of testing and not doing really strict measures of social distancing, at least in the, in the major cities of a country, is a rather dangerous strategy, um, or risky, at least I would call it a risky strategy. Is there, I mean, is there any, any serious, um, I asked this already, I mean, but, but let me ask the question again, any serious um, um, challenge uh, or debate on this from the opposition, let's put it like this. So are, is everyone in agreement with uh, this on a political level in the parliament or? So uh, in terms in... of the social distancing? Yes. Yeah, I think it's unanimous that this needs to be done. Yeah, but um, it's relatively weak. I mean, uh, if people are still uh, allowed to use the underground without masks, and if people are still, and if there are less trains and more people in the trains, et cetera, et cetera, there are quite some measures which could be clearly more intense uh, taken then. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be stricter. I don't know if this is a deliberate decision because um, so that whether or not people continue to get infected so that we build up some mm -hmm. kind of her, like herd immunity, I'm not sure what the reasoning is entirely. And also so that people kind of keep a certain level of sanity so they can go out. And I mean, you, you know, from, I mean, you've visited London, it's very densely populated. The population of London is almost the same, same amount as the entirety of Austria. Yeah. So I think if, and there's quite some really tiny flats or tiny living situations. So if it means people need to get out or want to get out and visit a park, and it means maybe they have to walk, Mm -hmm. or take a train maybe there's been some kind of decisions there to accommodate for um, different demographics of society yeah and when it comes to the situation in the hospitals is there i mean are there enough beds in the icus for example is it is, is intensive care still available for everyone or is it already uh, is the system already at its limit at the moment um so i would say actually one uh, i think good move by the government was to introduce what what's called the Nightingale Hospitals. So these are basically pop-up hospitals. Um, the first one was in East London in like a, it's called the Excel Center. It's a huge um, convention center. And it was set up with the help of the army and it, so it has an extra 4,000 beds. And this is supposed to be for like intensive care. So when patients arrive there, they will be essentially already on ventilators and will only leave um, once their treatment has ended. Um, and there's 
a plan for a total of seven of these Nightingale hospitals. And the aim is to take the pressure off um, general hospitals so that they can treat, firstly, non-people without the coronavirus and continue normal treatment, um, and also just to kind of manage the situation better. And for example, the first hospital um, of these Nightingale hospitals was, I think, put up, I think, in nine days, amazingly, which I think is quite impressive. And they seem to be um, helping the overspill. And I think in terms of numbers, the hospitals are currently managing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Still, I mean, that sounds a little bit like the stories you hear from China, right? That, that in a minimum period, um, um, new hospitals are built. But if there is already not a sufficient amount of masks available, I would also assume that there are plenty of issues when it comes to ventilators and other, uh, other material that is urgently needed in ICUs. Is there, um, in your view, any debate about the, uh, the health system as a whole that is ongoing again now? Because the NHS was quite intensely debated in the UK already during the last years. And, and as far as I know, also one of the important factors when it came to the debate about Brexit, uh, NHS was also one of the issues that were quite intensely debated because of its costs and so on. Uh, yeah. So is there any, any change in this political debate ongoing at the moment? I would say in terms of political debate in that area, it's kind of been put on hold because we have, mm -hmm. um, apart from the huge appreciation, which everyone now has for all of our health workers and the NHS in general, um, we've had huge issues when it comes to the personal protective equipment, the PPE. Mm -hmm. So we simply don't have enough. And now there's guidance coming out that um, health workers should reuse the equipment or that we're basically, we were, for example, yesterday we were expecting a shipment of um, something like 40,000 aprons and other equipment from Turkey, which um, didn't, it was supposed to arrive yesterday. It didn't, it's supposed to arrive today. So far it hasn't. And there's been reports on the news that will either arrive later today or tomorrow. But this has been a real big issue because I think the entire outlook by the public is that um, NHS staff are on the front line of this battle, as with all medical staff everywhere, and they're simply not equipped to fight it. And that's a real issue. So you have problems with staff. Not only can they not protect themselves, but then they may be reinfecting or infecting other patients simply because they don't have the right equipment. Yeah. And there's also now been issues not only with the NHS staff and hospital staff who don't have the equipment, but also staff in care homes or in prisons, for example. And it's, mm -hmm. that's been a real, real big debate. And I think the government in that sense has really fallen short. Mm -hmm. and do they have an explanation for this? So what is the official statement of the government when it comes to shortage of protective equipment of health uh, personnel? I mean, that's something I would expect, uh, which is a serious problem for anyone defending the policy. Um, yeah. So how do they do this? And how do they, uh, do you think that they are successful in convincing people that, that it's a kind of force majeure that is happening here? Um, I don't think they're that successful in convincing people. There's been mm -hmm. a lot of frustration. I know um, that they've said now, the government has said that it's critical that we get the PPE in. That's Mm -hmm. one of the priorities at the moment. Um, there's not been any real excuse as to why this has been the case. I think it's probably um, not the best organization and um, the obvious issue with the competitive market at the moment with getting hold of this mm -hmm. and then being late to the game again, as with the tests. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And do you think that, I mean, being late on the market and being competitive on the market has also something to do possibly with no longer being part of the EU, right? Because at least in some of the European countries, we see not a lot, but in, in, in some very small pieces, some kind of solidarity or unified approach or common approach to try to get material on the market and then share it within the European Union, uh, giving it to those who need it the most. Uh, and the UK obviously is no longer part of this uh, of this infrastructure. Does is there any debate about this at the moment? Um, so there's actually not much debate at all mm -hmm. about when it comes to the EU and Brexit. Mm -hmm. It's been totally eclipsed with by coronavirus in general. But I would say that um, and there there were some recent meetings with the EU regarding getting hold of ventilators and other equipment. And from what I understand. Um, there were some communication issues, let's say that was the excuse that was given um, on both sides, apparently. But I think it was also the UK expressing the fact that they um, kind of want to handle this on their own. But I have no doubt that if you're part of a kind of a union, that it could only serve to help. Yeah, so I, that's my question, right? Because I, I mean, being rather naive probably in this, but if I, if I have a market with hundreds of millions of people um, and I need to buy something uh, on the global market and, and then distribute it with a hundred million people, it's probably easier than doing this as one single country. Um, and I would expect that somebody in, in the day-to-day -day political debate uh, uh, talks about that, but you tell me that that's not the case. Yeah, I would say it's not at the forefront at the moment mm -hmm. when it comes to political mm -hmm. discussion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how about the fact that the, the Prime Minister was infected himself? Um, does that play a role in the assessment of the, day, of, of the politic, political situation at the moment? Um, well, I would say in general that um, the politicians and the government adapted quite well to that situation. So obviously mm -hmm. he was in an intensive care unit, although it was said he was never bad enough to be put on a ventilator. Mm -hmm. And he was released from hospital, I think it was Easter Sunday. And then um, I was on video call in a suit and tie, praising the NHS. Um, and during that time, and as is still the case now, because um, apparently the Prime Minister is kind of resting up and recovering still, um, we have the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Rabb, who's kind of taken over the responsibilities of the Prime Minister. So, and I think so far that in terms of leadership things are running smoothly there's not been any major issues i would say mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. although he was not the only one within the government who who was suspected to be infected right there, yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 the, the, I, I read a little bit of crit criticism about the fact that he was tested very quickly whereas other people uh wait long or don't get the test at all uh is this correct and if so how is the debate ongoing on this um, so this was particularly an issue, um, I would say, at the beginning, but again, it's one of those things that's been overlooked. Mm -hmm. So where we have um, members of the royal family, even celebrities, um, politicians, all being able to get tests, um, mm -hmm. whereas ordinary everyday people, unless you're, if you're not a key worker or, for example, working for the NHS, then it's very difficult to get hold of a test. Mm -hmm. um, that's been a real issue. But I think for the most part, unless you're a vulnerable person, um, or a key worker, many people are taking the stance that they simply, um, the resources should be given to those who need it because mm -hmm. they're so scarce at the moment.
And within the community of health workers, when they are not sufficiently protected, does that change anything in their moral at the moment and in their, I mean, in their their approach, or are they still simply taking this as as something they can't change and do their work in the best way they can? Um, so I would say there are mixed views on this. Um, I know. I think the Guardian reported something like there have been around 81 deaths of um, health workers because of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, so that's obviously, as any death, it's kind of awful, but particularly deaths that may have been prevented through the personal protective equipment. Um, I think there's mixed thoughts on this because one, the medical staff have a duty or and they certainly have a duty to, of care to the patients, but they also have a duty of care to themselves and then not to reinfect patients or to be able to make it home to their families. So there's the idea that um, they should continue and just battle on with whatever they can and whatever they can put together. And then there's also, um, and I've spoken to, I have friends in London who are uh, work for the NHS and they are of the mind that they don't want to put themselves or other patients in danger. So, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a catch 22 in that sense. When you have patients that are dying and they're in critical condition, so yeah, it's very difficult. And then you have to think about yourself. Yeah, must be very, very, very difficult, really. I yeah, I think that's at least from an outside perspective, it's clearly more stressful than than the situation as a whole looks clearly more stressful than than it looks at least currently uh, here in Austria. Um, when it comes to day-to-day -day life of students, are, are universities uh, closed? Yes, I assume that there is yes. no teaching at universities, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's home learning everywhere, just like it's here in Austria. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And does that run properly in your perspective? I mean, I, I would assume that the UK is doing quite well in this because uh, e-learning and e-teaching is quite common there already. So I, I would assume that there are not too many problems when it comes to uh, adapting teaching uh, to the new situation. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say obviously every university is different in a sense, but mm. on the whole, um, because many institutions all, already operate um, distance learning as a standard, so, um, and recording and so on. So I would say in general, this is, um, this is running quite smoothly. Yeah, and in particular, Edinburgh even offers an, an LLM in the field, which is completely based on distance learning, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, that that of course doesn't. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the uh, one of the programs that probably profits out of the situation at the moment. How yeah. are they doing the testing there? By the way, is it is it, everything is open book? I assume, right? Um, so I'm not sure. They haven't. I haven't looked exactly at the decisions that have been made, but I have, for mm -hmm. example, uh, my sister who's at Southampton Solent University, mm -hmm. and the decision was that it was open book um, mm -hmm. for some of her exams, and then others have been postponed. And some have been postponed, um, for example, to August, mm -hmm. which is where normally people would take resets from uh, the June or July exams. Yes, yes. And uh, I mean, is there, for example, in the legal community or in the legal teaching community, a serious debate about whether um, testing on open book basis is serious testing? Or do people simply take this as, as granted that you can assess uh, legal knowledge by open book tests? Uh, well, actually, some, some universities do that as a standard anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that really depends on the institution. Yeah. Yeah, because as you certainly know, this is one of the hot topics here in, in Austria at the moment in how far it is possible to do 
uh, exams in, in the legal domain uh, using open book test rules uh, instead of the usual five hours period in which you need to solve a, a given case. Um, yeah. And there are quite some people who are reluctant that uh, changing the system uh, would work without clearly uh, um, reducing the, uh, the the complexity of the of the case or the, the questions asked. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, okay. So then, uh, one of the uh, one of the reasons why the UK is always very interesting for for continental lawyers, in particular when they are a little bit sensitive in data protection, is that the UK has a very different approach, in particular when it comes to video surveillance and uh, and policing um, on on the streets uh, already in times. Uh, that are less stressful than than the corona period at the moment. So how how is all this policy enforced at the moment uh, when it comes to uh, restrictions and social distancing? Um, so so it all started with um, the health and protection regulation, which was brought mm -hmm. in on the tenth of February, um, and this is brought in on very quickly, I think in the same day that it was put forward, it was brought in. And this is because it was done under the Public Health Act, which is a 1984 statute. Mm -hmm. um, so this is brought in as a piece of secondary legislation and basically was able to enforce the lockdown in the case that there's a serious and imminent threat to public health under, because of coronavirus. And obviously there was. And then later after the announcement of the lockdown, so three days after the announcement of the lockdown, another law was brought in so the health um, protection coronavirus restrictions regulation and this is what restricted the movement restricted the opening of businesses um, the ability to gather in groups um, and then this in turn allowed for the police powers when it came to restricting and monitoring um, so the issue was though that this one the police had to have um, a reason to believe that one of these restrictions had been um, kind of contravened and then two that it was necessary and proportionate um, to kind of police this and the way in which they were policing and so obviously as you may have seen in the news we had big issues with the use of drones so a big one was in the Peak District National Park where people were out walking which technically they are allowed to do because that's one of their exercise a day um, and as far as I know they were also using the correct social distancing measures and so on um, but drones were flying over and surveilling them and there was a lot of criticism i think even big brother watch came in and said this whole thing was sinister and um, unnecessary we even had the former um, justice secretary who said that this was completely um, kind of over the top really mm -hmm. um, and it comes down to as we always um, this is always the case when it comes to limitations um, it's a matter of necessity and proportionality and it's about assessing whether it whether it's really necessary to send out a drone to surveil people in a national park who may be abiding the law abiding by the law that's a huge question we also had um i think it was surrey police um sent out a drone which is called sky talk which sounds uh very sinister and something from uh sci-fi films where basically it would fly over parks and open areas and um call out to people that were in groups and say, you know, this is a police message, you need to disperse, go home and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and they, the argument from the police in that regard was that um, it's easier because you, it's easier, it's faster, um, because you don't need to put police then in danger. But then there's a question of the overzealous policing, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, I know we had um, an, an 
kind of a comment from the human rights group Liberty, which said that um, while everyone's coming together as public um, and this is all working, the lockdown's working and this is not an issue, the potential overzealousness and hard handedness of police could basically undermine all of that. And that's been a concern. Yeah. And are there any cases already brought in, front, brought in front of courts because of this? So is anybody officially filing a claim uh, that you are aware of against those drones? Or is it just political debate at the moment? I think it's just political debate at the moment, at least that I'm aware of. Okay. But if I wanted to challenge this as an individual, could I? And if so, how? What should I do? I mean, if um, I were one of the individuals being affected by such a drone in the park, what could I do? Yeah, so I think I'm sure you could. And I think that would be uh, a matter of contacting your local authority and asking what the reasoning was behind this. And then assessing, I mean, you'd have to employ some kind of legal services unless you're a lawyer yourself. Mm. Um, and then perhaps putting it in front of the court. So the courts are still operating um, as a necessary service as a, or like a key um, service, basically. But I would say this would probably be a slow process at this time. Yeah, and you are not aware of a single case. So at least not at the moment. NGOs don't do this at the moment. No, if only from what I'm aware of, there's been comments from NGOs, but there's been no single case on this so far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the drones are still flying, or did the police stop this then after the outcry of the public? So there was, um, there seemed to have been kind of um, a turnaround in police approaches um, when it comes to tackling the situation. So. The, the obvious issue was the overzealousness of police in the beginning, which I think is possibly due to the um, ambiguous law that was put in place. It was not clear exactly why people are outside, how you assess whether or not the reason they're outside or what, whatever they're doing is valid. There's no requirement for proof of anything. Um, so after that, the kind of, um, I would say it was almost like a transitional period. This is a new law, right? And it's about in many ways, trial and error in this sense. I mean, I don't agree with it, but um, there were some mistakes, I would say, when it comes to overzealousness of surveillance. But from that, um, the government has come out with further guidelines. So to suggest examples of why people are allowed to go outside, and then there have been police guidelines to instead of simply enforcing the rules um, and imposing fines, which they could, they could impose 60 pound fines for the first offense. Um, it's then changed to more of an explanatory thing. So where police go along, they talk to a person, explain, you must go home. This is why you need to go home. Um, and only then, if it's necessary, they may um, literally drive them home or arrest them or impose the fine. Mm -hmm. And isn't there, I mean, that sounds so, so interesting, I would call it, that on the one hand, they try to... Uh, enforce social distancing in parks using drones and at the same mm -hmm. time on the other hand uh, the the London underground is 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 running on on with a reduced amount of of trains uh, which is obviously uh, leading into a situation where people can't really uh, practice social distancing uh, which sounds a little bit contradictory to me uh, and uh, it, and and the, the does the police handle this contradiction or is it simply ignored or I would say for, from what I've read, the focus seems to be when people are outside doing things. And I think maybe it's because of the fact that it's difficult to manage the situation on the underground. And maybe there simply aren't enough police to manage the situation. Yeah. And doesn't that remind many of the, of the British uh, of a, some kind of Foucault-style surveillance state? 
yeah certainly perhaps that's the case yeah but it doesn't change i mean it's 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 something that uh people who have a little bit of a privacy tick are interested in but the general public doesn't care too much or oh no i think they do care i would say they do care even people that aren't interested in law um hence why there was the kind of the change in police approach and we haven't seen so much on the drones or police we had policing of in supermarkets of certain aisles and that's completely stopped mm -hmm. from what i understand so i would say the general public and the general outcry did have an influence on the police approach okay okay so that's a little bit more positive than perhaps yeah yeah what about the media are the media supporting uh the the government or is there a clear um is there some criticism also coming from 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 let's put it for example the bbc or how is how is the bbc doing at the moment what are they doing yeah so i mean the bbc is supposed to be impartial right yeah. um um i'd say across all media and as with the bbc um and the guardian for example that's looking at the times um there's a general kind of disappointment in the way that everything's been handled particularly with regard to the amount of resources and the protection of nhs staff that's been a real big thing um, just this morning, I read a Guardian, Guardian article literally listing the five shortfalls of the UK government. Um, and I think they haven't been holding back in that case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the Guardian is probably not really the journal everyone on the street reads, right? So it's, um, and yeah, but yeah. still, yeah, obviously, obviously. Okay, do you think that, I mean, when it comes to the overall political situation in the UK, um, uh, the, the, do you think that the government is struggling when it comes to the very fundamentals so that there is a serious risk that, uh, that you would have a change of government because of this crisis? Or is it more that, uh, that this will not happen because crises like this one here tend to support the position of government uh, on a mid, at least on a midterm perspective? Yeah, I would uh, more agree with um, your latter suggestion. Yeah. I think that um, in general, political issues when it comes to kind of which side and political agendas have really been put aside. Mm. Um, and, and like, as is the case with Brexit, it's been totally overshadowed by um, in favor of public health, basically. Yeah, yeah. By the way, Brexit, I mean, there is a deadline running, um, which is quite close. Um, uh, uh, do you know anything about whether there are uh, thoughts about extending again uh, the deadline? Or, uh, I mean, how should that ever work? It's, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I read something, I think, two weeks ago that negotiations are still ongoing uh, between the EU and the UK. But I would assume that there's not too much uh, to be negotiated at the moment because of the overall chaos. Do, do you know anything about that? And do you know anything about the internal political debate about this? Yeah, so when I was doing um, kind of recent research, I think that most of the negotiations have basically halted because they've yeah. been so eclipsed by the coronavirus. Um, from what I understand, there's um, an option to extend the deadline beyond the 31st of December, but this has to be agreed by both sides by the 1st of July. Um, and it's kind of mixed in the UK. This morning there was an announcement from uh, a member of the Scottish Parliament saying that we should absolutely extend it, given the current situation. And that these are such um, exceptional circumstances and Brexit's such a serious thing, which needs full attention and resources, I think. Um, but then there's also, on the other side, we have people saying, you know, actually stick to it, stick to the hard deadline, that it's um, perhaps that coronavirus is going to be, or the situation is going to be more managed, manageable, let's say, 
from a political point of view. Um, but I would say it's generally mixed. Mm -hmm. But it makes, in my mind, rational sense to be able to focus now on public health above all things and then political agendas and situations when it comes to Brexit at a later stage. Yeah, but if nothing happens now, the outcome of this would be that end of December, uh, we have the, the hard Brexit and no further debate about this. And, and I would assume that that would put further chaos uh, in, in the country and produce further chaos in the country and, and also in the European Union then. I mean, having a corona crisis, which is probably not over in December, and a hard Brexit. Wow. I mean, I... Yeah. I, I yeah, but there's no no official position of the government on this yet, and not even informally they are, are uh, I mean, setting their claims or something. So no, no, unclear. Mm -hmm. Nothing from the top, anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And would you personally think that the risk of a hard Brexit has increased now? I don't know. I have. I mean, I have mixed feelings on what the actual decision would be. Mm -hmm. I would like to think that there was some level-headedness here and. Um, this situation um, is extreme enough and extraordinary enough to postpone Brexit so that we can seriously think about um, the situation while still focused now on public health mm -hmm. and human lives, basically, rather than um, politics and who can fish where. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems, it seems, Brexit's very serious, right? But it seems mm -hmm. almost trivial in comparison to um, the current situation. So in my mind, it would make sense, absolute sense, to extend the deadline. Yeah, okay. May I slowly come to an end, Emily, and ask our viewers if you have any questions or comments, please do so. Ask them in the comments of this, uh, of this live video. May I slowly come to an end, Emily, by asking you whether you s anything that you see um, uh, on, on Austria, how Austria deals with the situation, um, as far as you can assess this, is there anything that you find uh, remarkable in, in a positive or in a negative sense, or is it just that you, that, that you don't see anything which is outstanding um, or very, very different from the perspective that you have in the UK? Um, I would say that in general, it seems like Austria is handling things um, I mean, from the perspective of the UK, where Austria doesn't get, um, it's not the most talked about, right? But I would say that Austria seems to be handling things quietly and well, I think. Mm -hmm. It seems, from what I've understood, understood from the numbers, the death rate is like leveling out, if not decreasing. Mm -hmm. um, people are just getting on with things, trying to stay positive. So I would say that in general, Austria is handling it well, looking from the UK. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although there are, that's a very positive and optimistic view. There are also more negative views, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. but um, overall, I think many people share your your point of view. Actually, we've got one question, which is concerning contact tracing. There is wider support in surveys by the public in the UK, for example, compared to Austria. Do you think that this is due to differences in understanding privacy in the law? Oh, that's uh, a very fundamental question. Yeah, yeah. good question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would say in general, so from what I've looked at, the main contact tracing app um, comes from the NHS, NHSX, which is um, basically the innovative arm of the NHS. And they're working in combination with Oxford University to produce this um, contract, contact tracing app. Um, I'd say that one of the biggest uh, kind of points that was put forward was that this should be voluntary. Um, 
and I think if that is the case, then um, there wouldn't be so many privacy or data protection issues. Um, and this it's been highlighted that we should absolutely focus on privacy and data protection, but there's been absolutely no steps on how to do this or no action mm -hmm. plan on how to do this. Yeah, quite the same here, by the way. I mean, there is, there is a similar app here in Austria at the moment on the market. And uh, there's also a debate, uh, or, or I mean, there's no longer a debate because everybody agrees more or less that it should be based on informed consent to use that and not on a law. Uh, but the, the typical outcome of this will be that if you simply put it on informed consent, there is a serious risk that not a sufficient amount of people will uh, freely give their consent on, on, on using this, which then again leads into a debate whether this is of any use. Yeah, yeah, yeah we've had exactly the same. I think there has to be uh, something like 56% of uh, the population has to actually use it for it to be effective. Yeah, and at the moment, the, the numbers are probably clearly below that, right? So, yeah, I mean, it hasn't yeah. even been uh, released yet. Yes, because it's yeah. technically not ready or because the legal uh, assessment is not done yet. I would say it's probably more of a technical technical mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's another issue, which is that many of those apps do not, simply do not work at the moment, right? So yeah. they are 